Welcome to IBBA Insights, providing expert advice on buying or selling small businesses. IBBA Insights is presented by the International Business Brokers Association, the world's largest nonprofit organization for those helping others sell or buy businesses. Now, here's your host, Press Diglio. I'd like to welcome everyone back to another episode of IBBA Insights. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about something that everyone seems to have an opinion on. Everyone always wants to talk about the economy. Is it good? Is it bad? Now, I guess sometimes it just depends on who you're listening to or who you talk to. You know, whether you watch CNN, Fox, MSNBC, or look on the internet or any other media outlets, there are opinions all over the board. So, as we always try to do on the show, when we have a question, where there are many opinions, we go to the experts for the answers. Today's guest is Dr. Robert McNabb, who currently serves as the director of the Dragas Center for Economic Analysis and Policy in the Strom College of Business at Old Dominion University. He's a member of the Joint Advisory Board of Economics for the Commonwealth of Virginia and the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia's Survey of Professional Forecasters. Dr. McNabb is an associate editor, editor for the Journal of Economic Surveys and a board member of public finance and management. He's appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Daily Press, and many other publications, as well as television, radio, and podcasts. Dr. McDeb joined the facility, uh, the faculty, I'm sorry, of Old Dominion University in July of 2016. And previously, Dr. McNabb was a member of the faculty of the Naval Postgraduate School. Dr. McNabb, welcome to IBBA Insights. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I certainly appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule, especially now right before the holidays, to talk to us. And uh, it, it's a subject that really hits all of our listeners. Our listeners are predominantly business brokers, business owners, and business professionals. And they all want to know what's going on with the economy and what's to come. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to jump into a, a series of questions and we can certainly have conversation about Absolutely. Let's go. All right. So let's start off with a little bit, you know, 2020 was the year of the shutdown, 2021, the year of the recovery. When we look at 2022, what will that be known as? I think 2022 is poised to be the year that the expansion takes off. If we can continue to get vaccinations out to the general populace, and we avoid uh, hyperpartisan politics destroying the economic progress that we've made in 2021. If we look at the underlying economic conditions, they point to supply chains easing in terms of disruptions which would then moderate inflation. And that, of course, would increase business and consumer confidence. And then we would be talking about robust economic growth in 2022. So when we look at this economic cycle, is it different than others we've been through since pandemics are, are rare? I mean, this, we're, we're, in, we're in really uh, uncharted territories to, to a lot of us that are out there. Yes, this is um, unprecedented 
and we've you overused that word over the last 18 months. We have used unprecedented, uh, historic, uh, surprising, and we've kind of run out of object adjectives to describe what has happened. Because while we've had recessions before in the United States, and while we've had a major depression, um, obviously after the stock market crash in 1929, we have not before experienced such a rapid decline in economic activity as we saw in the spring of 2020. And just to place this in context, if we look just at people in the labor force, that's people working or looking for work, we saw in approximately three months uh, a decline of over 8 million people in the labor force. And that is just astounding in terms of its scope and its pace. And that shock will continue to reverberate through our economy and society for years to come. The good news is that, that we have seen a rapid recovery also, but it's not a complete recovery yet, and it's not an equal recovery either. One of the things I hear most in talking with uh, business owners and just regular everyday individuals that are, you know, out and about in the, you know, living their lives, the, the buzzword right now and the word on everyone's mind, that, and you hear it all the time, is, is hyperinflation. So what does this mean and is this something that we should be concerned about? Well, first of all, if somebody is using the term hyperinflation and discussing the U.S. economy, uh, you should apply probably a discount rate nearing 100% of whatever follows. Because uh, okay. if if you think about the U.S. economy, where we stand now, we just observed a monthly inflation rate of 6.2% in October 2021. This is not you know double digits a month. It is not hundreds of percent a year. We are not in a crisis economy mode a la Venezuela or Germany in the Weimar Republic in the mid-1920s where people are literally using bricks of money to buy bread. That is not occurring. What we have had happen is a transition from very stable price growth to uh, an unexpected increase due to COVID and supply chain disruptions and increasing consumer demand during the recovery. And if you're used to prices increasing approximately 2% a year, when that increase goes up to 6% on average year over year, you view it as a significant change in how the economy is acting and how you may think about future prices. But in historical context, if we were sitting in the late 1970s, we would have observed, we would have thought 6% inflation in a given month would have been a success story rather than a failure. So we have to avoid recency bias. That is, the latest thing we hear is often the most uh, most often the thing we give most weight to. And we have to avoid availability bias. That is, 
the thing you hear repeatedly is the thing you give most weight to. And realize, yes, we're seeing increasing prices, but we are obviously not seeing hyperinflation. And the economic conditions in the United States and globally do not warrant themselves to hyperinflation. We have to also realize that the inflationary pressures we're seeing in the United States, we're seeing them in China, we're seeing them in Europe and other countries as well. So this is a global phenomenon rather than solely isolated to the United States. Dr. McDab, one of our show contributors, Neil Isaacs, uh, had a question, and and I'll tweak it a little bit. He said, "Is the hyperinflation? So let's let's say the increased pricing, right, or inflation, is it more related to the supply chain issues or the government stimulus money?" Yes. So the the problem <laughs> is the problem is that inflation right now doesn't have a simple. Uh, point that you could put a trigger on that you could say, ah, this is the cause. And that bedevils us because we're looking for simple explanations to complex problems. It just doesn't fit in a soundbite. So let's think about what's causing inflation, good and bad, in the United States and globally right now. First of all, obviously, COVID and its impact on supply chains. So we're having supply chain disruptions globally that continue. Those supply chain disruptions mean that some producers aren't getting the inputs to generate goods for manufacturing, which then, of course, leads to increased scarcity in markets, which then leads to increasing prices because the second phenomenon that's happening is that consumer demand is continuing to increase. And even in the face of inflationary news and, and increasing inflationary expectations, Retail sales jumped fairly significantly in the last month of data, which shows that consumers are not retrenching in the face of increasing prices. They're increasing their spending because they're saying through their behavior that they believe economic conditions are getting better. So we have a COVID-related supply chain shock. We have increasing consumer expectations as manifesting themselves through retail sales. And then, of course, we have the addition of government stimulus in, earlier in the year, which increased consumption for the lower deciles and in the income distribution in the United States. So if you take all of these together, you end up with the conditions of basic economics, constrained supply, increasing demand, yielding higher prices. Yeah, I think what we've seen um, in the last year, or, or or less than the last year, you know, I deal with. We talk to business owners every day, and you know, they they're dealing with the the employment issues, the supply chain issues. You know, in the last year, there've been a lot of mandates or so where where the minimum wage has gone up, and and then thus we've also seen pricing. On, on everything go up. You go to the store or whether you go to the gas station and, and we're not a political show and we're certainly not a doom and gloom show and we're not a conspiracy theory show. That's why we talk to people like you, Dr. McDab, the experts that can give us a, a, a their, their honest viewpoint on what's going on. But how long do you see um, the price the prices continue to increase before maybe they start stabilizing or have they begun to stabilize already? Well, prices have not begun to stabilize 
in the most recent data. But if we go to the port data and we look at the backlog of container ships at the ports, that appears to be easing. And so we have the possibility that if throughput at the major ports, especially on the west coast of the United States, starts to increase and capacity constraints in the logjam decreases, then some of the supply chain difficulties will ease. The One of the major feeders into the price increases that we measure with uh, the basket of consumer goods and how they change on average in terms of prices is, is food and fuel. And fuel is much harder to tackle because that is you know, determined by a global market and OPEC is not increasing supply. And in fact, they're continuing to constrain supply. And that, of course, then feeds through the transportation networks, increasing the price of food and other goods. So there are some levers we have and some levers that the private marketplace is going to take care efficiently. And what we've seen is this repeated cycle that there is a supply chain disruption the price of a good goes up dramatically. It's reported in the news. Everybody then grabs social media to scream about it. And then the market adjusts, people's consumption drops, producers bring more goods to the market and the price declines. And we can see this in lumber and other goods. But we're just not used to these supply chain constraints. We're used to a just-in-time inventory system of being able to go to Home Depot or the grocery store. And what we want is there, not realizing that for much of the world, that type of convenience doesn't exist. So we are experiencing some of the supply chain disruptions that are much more normal in other parts of the world pre-COVID. Fair enough. So when we go into 2022, those people that are out there listening right now that are business owners or employers, you know, what are the biggest challenges you see that they're going to face going into the new year? There's there's two challenges, one that we're talking about, that uh, prices and thus wages are going to face increasing upward pressure, at least for the first six months of the year. Uh, I expect that the Federal Reserve will increase the discount rate, if not in its December meeting, then by spring as a response to dampen inflationary expectations. So the cost of capital is going to increase. The other thing is that we're continuing to see uh, record numbers of job quits. There are people that are moving laterally and across industries, but one of the main drivers of job quits appears to be early retirements. And that suggests that baby boomers are using COVID to reassess their retirement options. And many of them, given the high increases in equity prices and real estate values, are deciding to leave the workforce early. Whether or not employers are going to face a better job market in terms of people coming and applying for jobs and staying in their jobs is probably not going to ease in 2022, especially given that national and state unemployment rates are continuing to trend downward and are already hitting lows in some states. And we're not even through the point of the recovery where we're at the same point of employment as we were pre-COVID. One of the biggest uh, changes we saw through COVID and through the pandemic was how people work and 
people shifted from working at a physical site to many jobs to working from home. And there, there's been a resistance, it appears, for people wanting to actually go back to an office where they'd prefer to work from home. Have, you know, how will that affect uh, the economy or, or business owners going to have to shift and look differently at potentially how, how, they, how they hire and where their people work? I think it, it depends upon the industry in which you are working. If one of the things we have observed in the employment data is that IT-intensive industries had a much milder economic shock than labor-intensive industries. And this obviously makes sense. If you were able to rapidly transition to, home, to work at home because your work was primarily people working on computers, then you experienced a much milder economic shock than if you required people to physically show up at a workplace and deal with customers face-to-face during uh, the initial stages of the pandemic in 2020. What we've also seen is now that we're well into work at home is that many people have decided that they like this and they're going to sort themselves preferentially in the labor marketplace. So we're seeing increasing turnover in two types of industries. First of all, in low-wage face-to-face industries, we're seeing record turnover. So, for example, uh, one in uh, 14 to one in 16 leisure and hospitality workers were quitting their jobs in the summer months. And that means just extraordinarily high turnover for employers to grapple with, and they were seeking higher wages, and some were just leaving the industry entirely, which exacerbated already the existing labor gaps. The second point, and this is to your question, is we're seeing individuals sort themselves by work-at-home preference. And some companies have found that workers are quite resistant to coming back to the office, and they've continued to push back the return-to-office guidelines. And there's been no dramatic impact so far on worker productivity that we have seen. So if you keep these workers at home and they're keeping their production up in whatever work cycle they are doing, then the company really needs to adjust to that new preference, especially given the record number of job quits that we're seeing in the United States and the workforce gaps that are developing and persisting over time. The follow-on effect of this is that for companies that are small and medium, their demand for office space, especially for IT office space, is probably going to decline over the coming years because they are not in a position to reputationally demand that workers come into the office because workers in small and medium industries enterprises will just lateral somewhere else and they'll find it to their benefit in terms of reducing office space costs by having a more hybrid model of work. Some larger firms, because they are larger and they have their own campus, may be able to get many more employees back. But even then, they're going to be under increasing pressures from some, especially with higher wage, higher skill employees, to allow hybrid work options to continue. I think going through the pandemic, we, we found out that um, businesses and people in general are resilient and they also adapt. You know, the old myth used to be, well, people just aren't going to be as productive 
working from home. And I think they dispelled that myth. And now we're looking at um, employers saying, okay, now I have people working from home. They don't want to come back to the office. And there are some instances that I've read uh, and I've seen on online and, and on the news where employers now, although the wages have gone up, they're, they're trying to normalize or bring the wages back down just a little bit saying, well, you know, you don't have any wear and tear in your vehicle coming to and from work. You don't have all that drive time and you don't have any of that. Um, do you see that uh, happening within the uh, within the economy, also within the job sector where people are are now trying to you know, combat the, the growing wages with the convenience from working at home? And that's why we don't necessarily need to pay you a little more money. Well, employers are welcome to try whatever the market will bear. Um, and so far, we haven't seen evidence that that's a successful strategy. Uh, I know Google announced that, for example, and there was tremendous pushback by employers who said, if you were paying me $100,000 to work in Mountain View and I'm doing the same work in Reno, where's the difference in my value added to your bottom line? You should not be adjusting what my value is to you as an employer based upon my locational choice, whether I'm logging in physically in Mountain View or physically in Reno, Nevada. Um, and so what will happen is that employers that have leverage will be able to differentiate prices. That leverage may disappear, especially as you get employees who have much higher skill levels that could transition to another employer very easily. So if you think about it, what it really means is that if you are an employer and you have employees that are highly skilled and highly motivated, it is in your interest for your bottom line to make sure that your employees are happy, especially in this environment where there's large occupational skill gaps that the employees know that they could leverage to their advantage because if you lose key employees, it's going to be hard to attract talent without significantly raising wages to do so. And where they may, you know, they look sometimes, you know, oh, well, we could maybe save a, a few dollars um, because someone's working from home. But yeah, I would, I would probably agree, probably not the best strategy, especially since going forward, these same companies may find that when the current lease on the buildings that they're, they're working out of come due, that they don't need quite as much space that they once had. And, and so there could be cost savings uh, across the board for them in other areas. So, you know, maybe, maybe it just balances, balances out. Yeah, I think we're, you know, we keep talking about the great resignation that is, you know, people are putting their jobs at record rates, but we're really in a great experimentation right now about the nature of work. And as you move from uh, face-to-face, uh, relatively low-skilled employment to high-skilled, non-face-to-face employment, we're going to see the definition of what work is change. And I think what you're seeing is this discussion of if I don't need to be physically somewhere, why should you care where I am as long as I get my work done, which runs against sort of the middle management ethos of if I can't see you, you're not working. Um, and so those discussions are going to continue well 
well into 2022, if not further on, because if we go back to our earlier conversation about who is quitting, if you're losing uh, people in their late 50s, 60s to early retirement, that means you're losing people with experience and skills, which gives further power to people who are younger and highly skilled. So again, the challenge to employers is sometimes you need to draw back and maybe not saving a couple cents on the bottom line helps you retain talent because we all know how expensive it is to attract and keep new employees that are highly skilled. Plus, Dr. McNabb, the, the world has changed. I mean, I was born in 1970, so I grew up watching the Jetsons. I saw movies like Back to the Future, and you would see the, you know, the video conferencing that they talked about that we were like, oh, well, well that's way in the future. Well, that, well, that's now and that's here. You know, you could track people's progress and your employees' progress from home um, very well and pretty easy compared to what you could have five years ago, 10 years ago, or, or God, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So, you know, the, the myth of out of sight, out of mind, or what are they doing when they're not around? It, it just doesn't, I don't think that doesn't, that, that doesn't speak to today's society and business environment that we have. Right. And I will agree totally. I think if you look at COVID, it accelerated the great change in our workforce. That is, this whole discussion of work from home has been there. We've called it telework and you had to sign a telework agreement and there was only one or two days a week you could telework because people were concerned you wouldn't get your work done. And COVID changed that discussion dramatically to now it's, are you going to come into work one or two days a week versus working at home one or two days a week? So if we think about how the nature of work has changed. The question then becomes, has management changed? And I think that's the lagging problem right now for many firms is that they expected to come back to the office and sort of flip the light switches, dust off the desks, and we're back to normal, and the workforce requirements would be the same. And people have learned that things can be done differently and more efficiently, and they're happier by doing that. And so for many managers, it is going to be a change in expectations moving forward, or they will see turnover rates accelerate, especially given the discussion we've already had about the record number of quits we're seeing in the U.S. economy. You know, to change to change subjects just a little bit or, or or veer off in a different direction. We mentioned earlier that, you know, we're not a political show. We're not here to talk politics, but we, we also don't have our head in the sand. We know politics can affect, will affect and do affect, it does affect the economy. And so especially here in the United States, although we have a global economy and the world is shrinking and people do business all over the world, here in the United States coming into 2022, we have midterm elections that'll take place. So how does this typically affect the economy when you go into a year into a year where there are midterm elections? And do you believe it's going to be the same in this up with this upcoming midterms? Well, it's it is um, extraordinarily early in the midterm cycle, although I think everybody is already happy to make uh, forecasts about who will win control of the of the House and then uh, perhaps the Senate 
in uh, the upcoming midterms. We know that looking at the data that the party incumbent in the White House typically loses seats, and we also have the uh, impact of redistricting also, which would likely result in a net loss of seats for the Democrats in the House. So the question then becomes what type of government then emerges out of the midterm elections. If we end up with um, a divided government that harkens back to um, President Bill Clinton and the Republican Congress and the contract with America and sort of the tacking to the middle, then you end up with um, a divided government that's partisan but also generates uh, sound policy, or as sound as it can be, uh, that um, reduces federal deficits, uh, reduces the growth in federal spending, and um, lifts economic growth. On the other hand, if you end up with divided government that is just paralyzed, that's not the worst thing either because it generally means that you don't have wild swings in policy in either direction. You end up with sort of the status quo. The the larger concern then becomes if every presidential election ends up being this huge swing in policies, you you hope at the end of the day that the people who are making policies are qualified for the jobs that they hold. And so when we look at the 2022 elections from a nonpartisan basis, typically most people are not that concerned because you have it'll be just divided government if the Republicans take control of the House, for example. Um, and then the government will sort of limp along in the worst case to the 2024 election. In the best case, you might end up with bipartisan agreement on lowering the deficit and other immigration policy and trade policy. Dr. McNabb, in 2021, uh, 2020, before the um, the pandemic hit, and then 2021 during the recovery cycle, we had a lot of people that were business owners um, that were in a rush to potentially sell their business. And and this, you know, was I found very interesting a comment you made earlier that the baby boomers going through this have decided maybe it's time to take early retirement because in the business, the sa the sale of business, the world we live in, we saw a lot of people wanting to jump into it because they said. You know, the, there's a new administration, uh, the capital gains, tax laws, taxes are going up, and, and we need to sell now prior to all this happening. Well, we're past that. It's in effect, and it's taking place, and we're going to go into 2022 with, the, with, the, with, with different sets of tax laws and, and different ramifications to those making different amounts of money. But how do you see this effect uh, on people that are looking to possibly sell their business? Do you think they're going to slow down and hold on to it a little longer because they're not going to maybe they're not going to receive as much, or do you think that's not going to stop them at all? Well, I think um, the the great fear, unfounded, was that we were going to see just massive increases in, at the top-end marginal rate and capital gains rates. Um, and when I say massive, people were talking absurdly high, 50% and above, you know, back to the Kennedy and Eisenhower. Yeah, I remember. And it's like, yeah. that's never going to happen. Um, and even and even if we get back to rates prior to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, 
that might be interesting in itself. Um, and so if you're looking forward and you're asking yourselves, is it the time to sell a business? Well, given that the economy is recovering, given that we still have room to go, and that um, we have seen really the last of uh, you know direct checks to consumers in terms of fiscal stimulus, we're seeing the Fed now saying they're tapering off bond buying and they're talking about the end of quantitative evening and raising the discount rates in the coming months. Then you're saying then you should be looking at okay if we have divided government that means tax increases are not going to be on the table. And so the conditions might be economically that business valuation is going to increase in 2022 and beyond. And at the same time, the tax structure is not going to change dramatically. So the incentives seem to be, if you believe that's going to happen, to be to be one of your business is worth money now. And if you believe you can run it well for the next two to five years, it'll probably be worth more in the future. So some people are saying, Given that, it's now a good time to sell a business because now I can convince people to buy into that business given the economic conditions and essentially uh, the solidification of the tax structure. And for people who are looking down the road, they can look you know, five years down the road and say, I can work another five years, increase the value of my business, and then retire. So I think the, the business climate is improving for the sale of businesses, especially in the coming 12 months, uh, because the Fed has said that they are worried about overshooting on correcting for inflation. In other words, the Fed's bias now is to increasing employment in, by accepting higher rates of inflation on average. And so they will probably be a tad more cautious about raising discount rates aggressively over the next year to avoid dampening employment growth. So that just means economic conditions are probably going to be improving over the next 12 months. Some of the buyers that we've talked to recently um, that are looking to purchase, and even some of the larger groups that are looking to purchase, um, that are looking for money from federally funded programs or, or by government-based programs like the SBA, um, there is a fear of theirs that the money is not going to be as readily available in the upcoming year as has been in previous years. Is there is there anything that leads to that statement being true? Well, first of all, we're con we're right now operating under a continuing resolution that expires in December. So, if you want to think about this big picture, what it means is that the last budget passed by Congress under uh, proposed by President Trump um, is essentially continuing on until Congress can agree on a new set of appropriations bills and a debt ceiling. Um, and so the question then becomes, what will Congress actually agree upon? I suspect that we're going to see the, the continuing resolution get punted again for another two to three months just because they're Congress doesn't seem to be able to come to an agreement even on an authorization bill, let alone the you know necessary appropriations bills. So what does that mean for uh, federal lending, federal money? It means that essentially it's frozen at current levels. Uh, 
that means if you were expecting this uh, new swath of federal programs to merge with the new administration, those are not going to happen for uh, a while because even if the money were appropriated in December, it still takes a time to spin up new spending and get it through the system. So I think there's a kernel of truth there to say that the expectation that there will be this large inflow of federal funding to spur business acquisition and business growth probably is should be tampened down a bit, especially if we're thinking forward back to your previous question to the to the midterms, there'll be much more reluctance, I think, to engage in aggressive federal spending. And there'll be a push towards deficit reduction if the Republicans can take uh, take control of the House and or Senate. Well, Dr. McNabb, thank you so much for sharing all this wonderful insight with us. Before we go, do you have any uh, parting words of wisdom or parting words of advice for our, our listening audience today? Well, I think at the end of the day, there's, there is a lot of good news uh, about economic conditions out there. The um, thing we all have to avoid is availability bias. And I see this in the gym every morning and people have different channels on the TV. And depending upon which channel you are watching, you'll get a much different story about the economy. I think if we look at data, the data suggests that Many things are going in the right direction, but there are also worrisome signs. The federal deficit is structurally out of control, and there is no movement to have fiscal discipline in either party. Um, inflation is well above the average for the last uh, 10 years. The question is, has the Fed gotten behind the curve in terms of raising discount rates and easing off quantitative easing to, and then they're allowing inflationary expectations to form, which makes it much harder to break those expectations in 2022, which is why I think we need to keep an eye on that and keep the eye on the supply chain bottlenecks. I think if we look at that, we get a more balanced view of the economy built upon data rather than opinion that suggests that consumers are voting with their dollars, and which is why we're seeing retail sales increase significantly in the last month. Business expectations and investment are also percolating back up, and business uh, activity continues to increase. But again, we're now coming into the fall and winter, we're seeing COVID uh, infections rise and hospitalizations rise, primarily amongst the unvaccinated. And we do know that we're going to see another slowdown in economic activity because we've seen this story before that every time we have a surge in hospitalizations and deaths, unfortunately, consumers retrench until those uh, infections and deaths start to recede. So we're in this you know, peak and ebb cycle that's going to continue over the coming months. I think the last piece of good news on that is that we have now plenty of data on vaccinations to show that they're, they're safe and effective and have really uh, significant effects on reducing mortality uh, from COVID-19. And now we're seeing emergent treatments from Pfizer and Merck 
that if you are infected can dramatically reduce the likelihood of hospitalization and death, which means if we want to be optimistic that we're seeing uh, an inflection point in COVID, that every time we're seeing another peak, that peak is lower and lower and lower over time, and that would mean in 2022, hopefully, we're putting this more in the rearview mirror as something that's endemic rather than pandemic. So overall, um, usually as an economist, I'm somewhat pessimistic and conservative, but this is one of the, one of the few times I think we could go out and live and be a little bit more optimistic about the state of the economy, even with all their reporting about inflation out there. Dr. McNabb, thank you so much again for taking time out of your, your schedule, especially right before the holidays, for giving our listeners an economic update. Uh, would love to have you back on the show uh, in the future. And, and again, I just want to thank you very much for, for taking time out to be with us today. No, thank you for having me. It's always an enjoyable experience to talk about the economy for me. <laughs> thank you so much. But today we've been talking to Dr. Robert McNabb, economist on the faculty of Old Dominion University, uh, an expert um, in the areas of, of the economy here in the United States and, and, and globally. We talked about a lot of topics and a lot of, a lot of subjects matter on that topic. And, and hopefully, we're able to bring some clarity to the economic questions you all had. The IBBA and the IBBA podcast team will continue to strive to bring you experts for the topics surrounding everything business. So if you enjoy the IBBA Insights podcast, please subscribe. You go to ibba.org slash insights. Once you're there, you can subscribe with a click of a button using your Apple or Android device or by email. Once again, I want to thank you for listening, and I look forward to joining you again on the next episode of IBBA Insights.